Welcome to the Building the Elite Podcast, where we discuss the physical, mental, and emotional aspects of human performance within military special operations by looking at the principles that can help anyone thrive in chaotic and challenging environments. Dark Horse Benefits is a special operations veteran-owned charitable organization. Many of their members are former medics who are actively involved in the tactical medicine community as instructors. Not long after Russia invaded Ukraine, Dark Horse medics traveled there in order to train, advise, and assist people ranging from soldiers to school teachers in tactical medicine. They're helping to bring in life-saving equipment like tourniquets and first aid kits, and they're training people to use them. Today, we're talking with one of those medics, a former U.S. Navy SEAL and SOCOM medic named Kevin. So Kevin, what is Dark Horse? Dark Horse is a 501c3 registered nonprofit that works here in the U.S., um, very targeted approaches to helping veterans. Most recently, they got involved in Ukraine, bringing special forces, former special forces medics to help the Ukrainian fighting forces. I was part of the first wave back in March, first week of March, when we got involved and We've been there ever since, constantly rotating guys in, providing our services as best we can. And what prompted you to go to Ukraine? So for me specifically was our founder just reaching out to me and asked me to go. Aside from that was a Ukrainian nurse who reached out to me and asked me because I knew I was a, a former military, former special forces guy and asked me, Hey, how are you involved in Ukraine? And I told her I wasn't. So are you aiding Ukraine? And I said, I wasn't. So you're not helping at all my country. And <laughs> it kind of hit me. I'm like, well, uh, why do I have to help? But then I thought about it. Hey, I can do something in some way, shape or form. I can do something. When the dark horse founder reached out to me, Hey, let's go do some medevacs and help out some folks in Ukraine. I jumped on the opportunity. That's cool. And yeah, you have a very specific skill set for helping. Like yes. a lot of people, the help they can do is donate money or something. And what have you seen there? Like, I, I think everyone's kind of hungry for first person experiences or news from what, what it's like in Ukraine. What has the impact been that you've seen of the Russian invasion on Ukraine or the people there? It's pretty unique because when I went there, it was brand new. It's a very big country. So when I went into Ukraine on the Western front, there was no war there. It was a perfectly okay country. Then as you move further East, you start seeing bunkers. You start seeing sandbags, broken down homes, shelled homes, and actually military personnel patrolling the streets. And then back in March, there were cities that were completely evacuated and nobody was on the streets and you, there were checkpoints like periodically where you could not drive through. So fast forward to what are we on the fifth month when I left Ukraine for this period of time, I come here to this, the United States and it's, Hey, there's Hollywood movie stars coming to the Capitol to talk to the president. Is there really a war? <laughs> well, there is just not in those parts not there it's it's a huge country it's baffling how big this country is so yeah one side 
completely perfectly okay. The other side, it's war torn. It's completely destroyed. So yeah, as far as the the invasion, how it looks, it's disastrous. Cities are completely obliterated, homes destroyed. People are like running from these places and evacuating. Some can't leave because they're ninety years old and that's all they know in their life is this their farm. It's it's crazy. Right. And it's really indiscriminate, right? Like they're not exclusively targeting military personnel. It seems like they're hitting whatever they feel like. Yeah. Before I left, for example, back in June, there was a shopping center that got targeted. And I've been to this shopping center. It got leveled. The bus stop down the street, one kilometer away, got hit. Seven civilians, mom, daughter, dad, a bunch of civilians. From our residence home where we were staying, there's a an apartment building got hit just away from an airport. It was warehouses that got hit, but next to the warehouses that also got hit were homes, houses. So it's not necessarily, hey, military installation, this, weapons, munition, depot, this got hit. No, 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 no. It's bus stop, shopping center, residential building, apartment building. So it's not safe, no matter what yeah. anybody says. It's, it's indiscriminate. They're targeting whomever. Right. And you said you're you're there doing medical support. What does that mean? Training, running logistics? Like, what are you doing? So we're doing just how it was for me back in the teams. It was like jack of all trades as best as we can employ ourselves. And what does that mean? So we went in with the intent to do medical treatments and medical evacuations for troops. So because we're not directly in a uh, Ukrainian foreign legion, we are not assigned to a military unit. We don't have the intelligence to coordinate that. Nobody does. No foreign NGO has that. So while we were waiting to support in that fashion, hey, we're here to support medical evacuations, we had random special forces teams, random police, uh, army unit this, army unit that. They wanted to see if we can show them the ropes on how to be better at treating be better medics so we started yeah sure cool we'll check your aid bag we'll check your cl like combat lifesaver kit your medical kit your trauma kit we started going through their gear then we started training then they would roll civilians and police and army and marines and they would put an auditorium hey how do we put tourniquets on they didn't know because prior to the war 90 percent of them were teachers welders nurses, <laughs> civilians, photographers, and now they're in a trench fighting. It evolved from us wanting to do this mission set to, well, we can train. We can train you and we can check your gear and we can give you the, the latest and greatest of medical, like combat medicine. Yeah, we just train a lot of people, a lot of people. So it's kind of become the classic SF mission of like force multiplier kind of work. Yes, yes. Because their army, their whole military, uh, the numbers could be a little off, but let's say it's around, it was around 200,000 in February. The war starts and fast forward two months into mid-April, end of April, and they're at 2 million. So we actually augmented 
frontline troops. And I was working side by side with another combat medic. And I say that with quotes around it. He had never done medicine. He had never done any medical training, but he was the medic of his squad. So yeah, we, we train them. (laughs) So did that guy, I I assume he was a teacher or something a couple months ago. Did he just like watch some YouTube videos or read a pamphlet? And they're like, this is your job now. Figure it out. He uh, went on deployed medicine when he told me he's YouTube uh, combat medic (laughs) and whatever video he was just like, he would read up on it on his off time. And that was his medical training to be on the front line. Granted, he told me, he's like, hey, I've put on six tourniquets in the last like month. (laughs) Great. But I mean, thankfully, thankfully, you haven't had to do much more than that. Tourniquet is saves the most lives on the battlefront. I mean, it's uh, number one preventable cause of death is extremity bleeding and it's treated with a tourniquet. Yes, but there's more than that. That's not all combat medics do. So thankfully, mm-hmm. that's all he had to do. So uh, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> YouTube, he's a YouTube so- medic. <laughs> <laughs> and he's doing it. I mean, it's impressive. Yeah. yeah. I mean, aside from a general lack of training or experience, What's the greatest need that you see? Originally in March, it was gear. It was very slow rolling just because of the speed in which the military grew. They didn't have IFACs. Everybody didn't have a tourniquet. Everybody didn't have combat pants, combat uh, like a blouse, shirt, boots. It, it was very slow for everybody to get outfitted. Some of the guys in front lines would be in sneakers, sweats, and some sort of hand-me-down military shirt yeah here you go here's your ak and two mags and go get after it so it was gear at first but like i said it's been slow rolling a lot of foreign aid has been going in to this day dark horse still has medics augmenting units that have a very good ifac they only know how to put a tourniquet on they don't know how to use anything else in there and even to u.s military i mean if you have a needle decompression, like a, a 14 gauge NCD in your IFAC and you don't know how to use it, that's a dangerous tool in your toolbox. Yeah. And then you're now you're talking to dudes that only know how to use a tourniquet in your IFAC. That's, that's crazy. So it's straining. And then going back to the original thing, a couple months ago, this dude was a teacher. What does a teacher know about infantry tactics, combat medicine, shoot, move and communicate? So overall it is training. What's your biggest challenge in teaching TCCC or the the combat medicine stuff? Well, primarily is when we got to teaching actual medics, right? They had prior training or prior experience from either another NGO or a previous, possibly like an SF unit, like Army ODA. They felt that that was ominous, ominous, what they should be doing. But they got trained, what, eight years ago? Mm. The TCCC manual gets published every five years. Our TTPs get updated pretty much yearly. Like we do evidence-based research and our clinical practice guidelines are updated. And like when I was in teams, I would have to get recertified every two years. So it's not what I learned eight years ago or 10 years ago at the schoolhouse. It's what's the latest and greatest and how can I be a better medic today? It it was breaking those preconceived notions of, oh, this is the best medicine. 
that was a big one, especially with um, medics that had been trained. The, the language barrier is, I would say, another one. Because I would say something and then having to wait, and then it doesn't flow as easy. I don't know. I feel like when I've taught in Iraq or the wherever in the Middle East, the interpreters there know how to do this because of they've done it before. This is completely new. So like every interpreter wasn't an interpreter. It was just some person that knows English and he's learning some of these words. So he's, he would have to Google translate and he's like, what, what does this word mean? Crico what? Like throat? <laughs> he, he doesn't even know these medical terms. So yeah. dealing with an interpreter with, I've dealt with an interpreter before, but this time it wasn't an interpreter. It was just somebody who happened to know a little bit of English. So that, that was actually That's very tough. challenging. Yeah. What are the main things that have really changed in TCCC in, say, 10 years? Assuming you can talk about it, assuming it's not under wraps. It's how you teach certain things. The biggest one that I had to break down, or we had to break down, was reducing a tourniquet. So if you have, right, like a, a gunshot wound into your arm and you're, you have an arterial bleed, and uh, you put a tourniquet on, control it. Great. Now there's the two, four hour evac time that, okay, I have to one, approximate the tourniquet. So get it as close to the wound as possible. Right. And then if your medical evacuation time is long enough, then you would try to take the tourniquet off and put a pressure dressing. So pack the wound, put gauze, and then like some sort of ACE wrap or compression bandage. Well, that's based off of TTPs that the U.S. military experienced, like, for example, Africa, that your evac times were, hey, you won't get a plane for four to eight hours. And then from there, they have this long flight time to launch tool in Germany. So high probability that this service member might lose a limb because of a long tourniquet time. So that was something that happened then. Well, now you can't compare that to the tourniquet time of Ukrainian military because you're going to see a doctor in about an hour. But then you have mm. the guys like, oh, yeah, we evac time is it's over two hours. We're taking the tourniquet off. I'm like, no, man, just because it's just getting to an evac time of two hours, don't take it off. You're still going to see it, it's just an hour drive away the hospital. It's not that bad. So w these guys were like, yeah, we're going to take tourniquets off. And it's like, and you're not even a trained combat paramedic. You're, you're, you just had a four day course on medicine. There's there some procedures that go into reducing this. That's why we do it as, you know, like a, a combat medic. There's how we do it and what we look for and how there's, it's a process. They don't know the process. They just know, take the tourniquet off if, evac is this time so they don't know the why of why we do certain things yeah. they just know here's the protocol do it that that was the biggest thing and have to, having to explain it to them hey this exists because of our combat missions in this area of operations and these were our evac times so doctors gave us those protocols for that reason which doesn't apply in ukraine because it's a completely different <laughs> war essentially having the the ability to tailor some of this medicine to them and by no means i'm not on the TCCC committee i'm not a doc but i can change how i'm going to teach this to these guys because it's a little different it's 
even for myself, if it was my patient, if it's I'm treating this guy, I'm not, I wouldn't do that because I know he's going to see a, a doctor so very quick. So it's teaching them the experience, the knowledge, and then just force feeding them as much information for the ones that knew medicine prior. For the other ones, I, I would have to say, don't do it. Don't ever do this <laughs> for now. It was a lot of tailoring the medicine to them. What kind of injuries are you seeing most often? Blast injuries, artillery, indirect fire. From that, it would be shrapnel. Dude's just getting peppered with shrapnel, pieces blown off. In some parts, uh, burns, a lot of like explosions. Surprisingly enough, tons of questions about how to deal with white phosphorus. That was a biggie. For anyone in the audience who's not familiar, can you explain what white phosphorus is? They've been launching it and it just falls and, and it's a bright white. It reacts to oxygen and it just burns extremely bright. You can't really look at it directly. It kind of like burns your retina. And if any of this piece of white phosphorus lands on your skin, it just burns in. It's not like you something you just kind of like wipe off. It like burns into your skin. And since it's exposed to oxygen, it just keeps burning more and more and more. You just got to grab this piece of phosphorus, like a rock, essentially, and cut it out of your skin or suffocate it with mud or whatever. And the treatment is kind of weird because if it's burning stuff around where it's embedded in your skin, like your clothes or gear, they'll say use water to put out the fire, but the water reacts with the white phosphorus. So it burns more. So it increases the burning process. So use water to put out the fire around it, but it's going to aggravate. But it makes it worse. But it makes it worse. Yeah. So <laughs> the, the treatment eventually is cut it out, literally cut it out of your skin or cover it with like mud, like a, something that just asphyxiates that piece of phosphorus from oxygen pretty gnarly and then also the fumes the white phosphorus fumes create inhalation burns it's pretty nasty because it's not just hey stop drop and roll and you're good it's you're literally cutting your skin off jesus i'd have to look this up to be sure but i'm, I'm pretty sure that legally according to the icc or whoever regulates that it is only meant to be used on infrastructure or vehicles things like that like it's it's a war crime to target humans with it because of that, because it's so terrible, but you're seeing it on a lot of people. So yeah. And um, it's not publicized on the news anymore. It was for about a week and then it just went silent, but I still, I'm in telegram channels where people post it and you see it in the horizon, like the explosions wow. of the white phosphorus going off. And it's like, why is this not on the news? Wow. Is there anything you did not expect in terms of injuries you'd be treating or the scenarios you deal with that you would be better prepared for if you were to go back? Like, what have you learned since you've been there? How to better do impromptu classes <laughs> because I'm very used to preparing, hey, I have this a lot of time to do a course and didn't really happen that often over there where I would coordinate this military unit was going to do training for four days planned it all out. And then two days in, they tell me, Hey, uh, that's it. We got to go. Or day before or day, day of, they say, actually, we only have like half the amount of time. 
but we still need all this training. So kind of morphing whatever I was going to teach them to the bare bones, to the most impactful, most essential, or to the most likely injury set. So like I said, what would they see in a, in, in a blast injury versus a bunch of gunshot wounds? They're barely seeing gunshot wounds. They're seeing a lot of blasts like, oh, mortar landed right next to me. Your ribs are fractured. You're, you have blast lung. You might have some shrapnel in your chest or your arms and legs. And how do you treat that? So it was a lot of, hey, calling these different units, reaching out. What are you seeing in the front lines? Like what injuries and then tailoring a five-day TCCC course into a day of the bare bones essential. And not so much, and it's unfortunate that I would have to shave off like the theory because like I was telling you, if you understand the theory of why we do certain things, that makes you a better medic. But it was just, hey, you see this, you treat like this, period. And then call somebody for help. Call another medic and, and get their opinion. But it was... You see this, you do this, you see this, and you do that. It was a lot of, so tailoring that training is what I've gotten better at. And whenever we have other other medics rotate in for Dark Horse, it's always telling them, hey man, don't train like how you would train back home or at the schoolhouse, how we learn. It's trained with this amount of a lot of time. And that's that's the best we can do. Hmm. Or how big of a problem are equipment limitations and supply logistics like you, you said it's gotten better right but are, is that still one of the main constraints you have it's gotten better in the sense that like we we're seeing more units outfitted with ifax and their gear but at the same time these guys finally got outfitted with you know actually combat boots combat top like bottom shirt all that good stuff but that was it there it was their one issue we were augmenting a unit and we were in a trench for a little bit and we would see these uh, infantry units living in trenches and all they had to live with was their one pair of sock, one pair of shorts, underwear, op top, op bottom, and one pair of boots and whatever they can carry in like the, uh -huh. these purple, pink, hand-me-down backpacks from their family because they don't have an actual military backpack. It looks like a homeless person from LA, from Skid Row in, in, a, in, in a trench, just walking up and down with their gear. And it's like, dude, that's all you have. And, and this is from February, March. So on deployment, I had my three sets of boots, my four pairs of camis, uh, sets of camis and t-shirts. And like, if I needed something, I can probably get it in like a couple weeks resupply for them. Nobody's getting stuff to them. They got their one issue and that's all they're getting. So yes, from when the military blew up from their 200,000 to 2 million, it did take a while to uh, get gear. They have gotten it, but now it's, this war is actually going on really for a long time. It's normal wear and tear of war. So mm -hmm. re-outfitting guys. Yeah, okay, they got their IFAC. A lot of the, these guys have been using them, resupply them. So it's unfortunate because it's like people think it's like, oh, we, we supply them, great. Well, it's still going on. <laughs> these basic essential things, like a t-shirt, yeah. underwear, socks. The wet season is coming up and talk about World War II trench foot. That's what these guys are going to go through. So the change of socks, 
yeah, they need it. Yeah, I was wondering if you're seeing stuff like that already. Actually, no, because back in uh, in March when there was still a little bit of snow, it was more of a defensive war. So they weren't get they weren't building trenches then. Well, they were, but it was just like they were losing a lot of ground. Now that they've pushed back and actually created lines, now they have trenches, and it's been dry. It's been you know warm weather uh, all through the summer, so not necessarily that, but it's about to be fall right now. So, and it's going to get cold. So, uh, it's, it's going to get bad. Uh, I see it getting pretty bad. How does that stuff get to them? Like if say you're sitting in a trench somewhere fairly close to the line and an NGO does have a bunch of socks or backpacks or whatever, how does it get there? For the NGO, you have to have a good one. Unfortunately, there's a lot of this war tourism and feel-good mentality of uh, people that just go to the certain city with a couple sandbags and a blown-up tank and they take a photo or they (laughs) give... It's crazy because like so many Western NGOs from Poland, the UK, US, uh, Switzerland, everywhere, everybody and their mom was going to Ukraine to do their feel-good thing great if you're providing service fantastic but at the end of the day when we came in march we would see guys giving gear to everybody in that border and you would see military guys completely outfitted with the best gear they look like a more badass special forces guy than me when i was on deployment but now you go to these front lines and and like I told you, it looks like a homeless person <laughs> with their gear. So, <laughs> so how does it get out there? There's only a very small amount of NGOs that are actually like pushing to these front lines and delivering because the infrastructure of the Ukrainian military to deliver and to outfit these guys, it's, it's a baby. Like I told you, it just blew up. There's so many new people that it's just such a slow process for them to outfit all these people. And it's frustrating because I compare it to how we are in the military and I was frustrated with how we ran things, right? I, I, logistics and, and supply, I hated dealing with them because I, it was slow and uncoordinated, whatever. But then I, I see theirs, I'm like, oh my God, I had a good, mm-hmm. I was a king essentially. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, it's slow for their yeah. military. And in the small instances where an NGO gets, like, for example, a buddy of mine got linked up with an army surplus from Kentucky, I believe, and they got boxes of the army ACU, just like demilitarized, all the tags removed and everything. And hey, free combat top and bottom. And then they were just outfitting dudes, like the reservists that were rotating into the lines. And then they just got them. Oh, you have sweatpants? No, 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 no. Come here, get a nice pair of pants so that's one way it's catching them before they rotate in because they don't always stay in the trench it they they do have like onesies and twosies that rotate out for food new water certain things and then they'll get more gear but it's very slow for them so it's an ngo like like Dark Horse, when we embed with a uh, frontline force or another NGO that is training troops that are rotating in, I've randomly gotten coats and and beanies. And this was back back when it was a little colder. 
and I would just give it to guys. Hey, you guys want some warmies? Here you go. So that's that's pretty much it. It's just catching the guys when they're going to rotate in. Huh. Where you're at, what's the daily threat like? I mean, you're not in the city with the one blown up tank and sandbags. <laughs> what? So what's the daily life like where you're at? It's kind of spooky because it's gotten better back in in the start of the war. It was a higher threat for saboteurs. Frankly, if I go walk around in any of these villages or cities, I don't know what a Russian dude or a Ukrainian dude looks like. I can't different. They look the same. But I look different. Mm. The Americans look different. We stand out like a sore thumb. So it was kind of spooky going out initially. It's gotten better. There's much less of that. And then also enemy drones, they dominate the airspace. So we would see the little drones high above us. I've never seen an enemy drone that can actually like get a, a rocket, a long distance rocket to touch me. So it was very spooky originally. Now there's still air raid sirens. Every day without fail, there's an air raid siren. And it's as common as you eating your breakfast at eight in the morning, lunch at 12 and dinner at six. It's constant no matter where, no matter where you are in the country just certain cities have better air defenses so if you're in a one of those three cities with good air defenses you kind of ignore the air raid sirens a little bit but at the same time it's still odessa kiev have still gotten hit kiev has great air defense and a kindergarten got hit odessa same thing a shopping mall got hit pretty much leveled a bridge got totaled, cutting off a main supply line for them. So, yes, it's not as bad, but at the same time, it's it's still troublesome. I know when I was there, this is my bunker. This is my little hole that I will go down into when this alarm goes off. And you just hunker down for a little bit. It, it took some time getting used to people just because it's tiresome. How many times a day are you just running into your bunker? your bomb shelter uh, and people started ignoring it because four or five times a day you're running into this thing and oh nothing happens nothing happens nothing happens people start ignoring it so throughout the country it that that is a threat russia can has a missile that can go anywhere in the country it doesn't matter where they target more city certain cities more so than others but you never know i, I don't know where they're gonna throw rockets at the threat level as for saboteurs, it's much less. For the front lines, you, you know where the front lines are. You know where the, the troops are. It's not how it was originally, where Russia was constantly like creeping up. Um, there are defensible lines now. There are more frequent updates that they pass out where they're doing pushes, a lot of kinetic activity. So that's that. But then the biggest threat is every day there's a rocket attack. Where is it? Where is it going to go? I don't know. How is that affecting the civilians that are still there? And how do you see them adapting to it? I don't want to say they're numb to it because they still acknowledge the fact that there are air raid sirens. They do get a posture, especially in the cities that don't have good air defense systems. When these air raid sirens go off, cafes, restaurants, business centers, they, they close shop. I was at a tax office. I was doing some paperwork for the nonprofit and the whole office closed shop. They asked me to leave. They were all, they were departing. They, 
it's like, hey, there's an air raid siren. And it kind of clicked on me. I'm like, oh, yeah, like I was just casually ignoring it, but they're not. Some people become numb to it, right? They, they're still walking around doing their normal thing because they're tired of it. But it's still like, holy shit, like there's rockets incoming, possibly here. Or the next one could be the one kind of thing. We were originally very adamant on staying away from military installations. Now it's staying away from any, any, anywhere where there's congregated groups of people. That's where we stay away wow. from. Brings up one of the scenarios you're training guys for, right? The mass casualty scenario. Yes. It's uh, how to deal with very limited resources and in, in a very chaotic you can't really prepare for this. It's just chaos, pure chaos. And we trained guys on how to manage the chaos. Specifically, I remember we did pretty good training with, um, it's called territorial defense. Um, it's kind of like their reservist sort of, or national guard, I would say. So we did their territorial defense, uh, some special mission unit and the police and, uh, some like military paramedics sort of we we put on about almost two weeks long of training we did first obviously TCCC and then we were doing just scenario based utilizing different teams different response teams one would be like the, the guys in the field another one would be like a, a clinic stage and then the, the tertiary one would be your more robust facility one team would be very limited on resources the other one would have vehicles the other one wouldn't so it was very dynamic to how we were training them. After that course, one of the guys wrote to us, sent us a message because uh, about two kilometers from our residence, uh, a rocket hit uh, a residential building. And he responded, that was his first mission when, after joining, right? And he thanked us, he's like, hey, I went on my first mission. It was local, right? But then again, he just went through a wreckage and saw seven burnt bodies and treated however other many civilians that were in the wreckage burnt in the explosion and he said like hey thank you for the training i appreciate it uh it prepared me to deal with what i saw i've never dealt with a mass casualty myself but it, it's one of those that i would never want to deal with that it's crazy it, you don't know what you're we're going to deal with a mass casualty can be two people if you're very limited on resources or a mass casualty if you have a bunch of assistants and a bunch of medical gear can be 10 people. So for him, I mean, dude, you're just a paramedic with a little aid bag and you went into a like a burning building and that was partially collapsed. And we have a video of it on Instagram where we like superimposed his statement that he sent into us and we drove back past the building and as it was like still smoking. Yeah, I mean, he was super appreciative to be able to deal yeah. with that. By definition, a mass cas is like, there are more casualties than you have the capacity to deal with, basically, right? Isn't that kind of how you define that? Yes, yes. Yeah, it'd be awful. If my resources permit me to treat two people, anything past that is right. a mass casualty. For him and his little team going That's in there. That's a lot. I mean, that, that is a mass casualty. How does Ukraine differ from what you experienced in Iraq or Afghanistan? It's a modern country. It's more well-developed. There is infrastructure. There's modern buildings. Like It's not huts, right? There's no open desert. It, so that's first and foremost. From there, it's 
a huge country. You can drive for almost 15 hours and you're still inside the country. You have varying like terrain. You go from mountains to the beach to rolling hills to farmland to urban city, woodland, like the woods. Yeah, it's just so much different terrain. Whereas Iraq was, you know, the desert. There's a dam here, there's a river here. Yeah, but it's the desert. Yeah. You're at risk of being targeted by, are they using commercial drones? Just like something I go buy at Best Buy or something to target people? They had high-end drones initially. Like I said, when I've seen an enemy drone that was like pretty high up, those were like, you know, you're not buying those at Best Buy. A lot of those got shot down. Actually, they have been shot down. You don't see those. But now they are commercial drones. We were at a range one day and uh, we were doing some training we let off uh, a few rounds to uh, simulate, well, actually, we were actually doing gunfire to make guys hurry up and whatnot. And then you hear the, the buzzing, just a drone going up, mm. enemy drone. It's like, hunker down, go hide from the view, like get, get into the tree line. They start walking in artillery using commercial drones. Yeah, go to Best Buy, spend 900 bucks on a drone. That's what they have. Wow. Buy it. A lot, a lot. For every drone Ukraine has, the enemy has probably like 20 or 30. Huh. And they have better jamming ability. Yeah, I was wondering, like, what are the countermeasures? Are, are there people just hanging out with shotguns waiting for something to come by? Or, like, how are they dealing with that? <laughs> so they have uh, frequencies that jams commercial drones. They're actually pretty good at it. They'll be able to knock out a lot of the Ukrainian ones. And Ukraine does have the same capabilities, but not not as often. Like I said, for every high-end piece of gear Ukraine has, Russia has like 30 of them. They jam, um, jam frequencies so you can't control the drone and then it just falls out of the sky and there, there goes your drone. Or they just shoot it out. A lot of them, they see it and they start shooting at it until they hit it. On the... Uh I guess you call it the electronic warfare side. Have you been getting like text messages in Russian and things like that? Are they are they messing with your individual SIM card? Um, we use measures to avoid that. We don't use our personal phones. I, I had a, a cyber guy show me the capabilities that they have and wear your <laughs> tinfoil hat 100% as best he can. Every Everything because it's mind boggling. Yeah. Do you avoid bringing in any kind of, like, I assume you don't have a laptop with you or anything like that? Like any, any kind of personally identifiable? I actually do have a laptop, but I try to minimize like how I use it. I had a guy run me through a process to pretty much encrypt my stuff and basic security measures. Um, it's not much. It's enough that as long as I'm not, you know, closer to where, where a high end, electronic warf- uh, warfare guy would be to pick up my my uh, signal my signal or hack me um, if i'm in like a, a major hub of a city as long as i do my little protocols i'm relatively okay the only big thing is yeah i i do have a laptop i just don't tie it to my personal stuff when i'm over there what about the other foreign volunteers like I, when when this first kicked off there was a ton of chatter on the just the internet of people. It seemed like a lot of posturing, but people going over there to 
get their war on or whatever. Are you seeing a lot of other foreign volunteers where you're at? Yeah, countless. Western Ukraine was a congregation of foreign volunteers. It was absurd. You'd go into the checkpoints going in from Poland to Ukraine, uh, Slovakia to Ukraine, Romania to Ukraine, and it's just dudes in camis, people with wearing op gear and, <laughs> and kit and body armor. It's like, why? Like, what are you doing right now? And they'd stay in those border cities helping and taking photos. Oh, I'm in Ukraine, taking photos with the signs and everything. Whoop-de-doo. Mm. And then we bypassed. We went almost, like I think I told you, we went 15 hours into the country and we hadn't gotten to the other side. There were no more f- foreigners. It w- And like I said, it was, we would get stopped at checkpoints. Like, why are you here? Who are you? <laughs> We've never seen an American before. Huh. That was actually the craziest one. It's some of these people have never seen an American. Huh. In the beginning, yes, there was tons of foreign volunteers on the Western Front. Now, because of how the line, the battlefront, the zero line has been set now, it's not ambiguous, it's not fluctuating so often. NGOs have less risk for us back in in April is are we gonna get encircled and cut off from our egress route? So because we were former SF guys, we knew, hey, this is our E&E plan. This is our no-go criteria. We had contingencies. Get a paramedic volunteer from Kansas coming over there, and uh, they don't know that. All they know is uh, whatever homeboy on the corner deli is telling them, oh, yeah, Russians are over there. He doesn't know. So, yeah, there was a lot of war tourism. Were they providing a service? Maybe sort of a lot of self-serving oh yeah i helped but something was done and uh but a lot of those people have left it's dwindled down the network that we have of ngos and how they're cooperating how they're aiding each other exists and it's still pretty robust like if if we need an evac of eight civilians, a couple babushkas and their kids and whatnot. Uh, babushka is like grandma. <laughs> so if, if there's a, an evac needed, there's a network of people. Hey, you have vehicles. Hey, you, you're like military guys. You have you know, body armor kid. You're willing to risk it to go pick up these people. There's a network and we can coordinate. Back then it was just everybody was in their own little circle. Nobody talked to each other. But because it's dwindled down, we know now it's like, oh, that NGO, they have a couple of vehicles. That NGO, they do TCCC training. That NGO, they have a warehouse. This NGO feeds babushkas in the southern part of Ukraine or north, northern side of Ukraine or what have you. That one, they work with churches. We kind of know who's who and who's where, and we're more easily able to communicate and get things done. You've mentioned that the it's the smaller ones that you seem to rely on. Why is that? I asked, I specifically remember this. I don't know. It was it was a representative of, of a bigger NGO. Well, he was repping two NGOs, but one of them had supplied him with gear. He's like, oh yeah, I have 60 IFACs and other medical equipment that we're giving to frontline troops. And I had just come back from a frontline augmenting a unit and training. Like I told you, we were in a range and there's enemy drones going up. And I was like, oh dude, yeah, like... 
I can take it back to this unit, uh, a couple squads I was augmenting. Perfect. Um, you want to turn over some of that gear? He's like, hmm, no, we're going to take it back to Lviv, straight back to the western part of Ukraine where there's no war. And it just baffled me. I'm like, you just told me the criteria of how you're donating this gear. I gave you the information. I gave you the point of contacts. I gave you how I would distribute it and the training we would provide. And nope because he was part of a bigger NGO. I deal with a smaller one and it's constantly, hey dude, I got a pallet of medical gear. Can you distribute it for me? Oh yeah, 100%. I received four pallets of MREs and it's like, how do I distribute this? Oh, this little NGO right here, he deals with the church network so he can use all his little Sunday church service to distribute this. This guy right here, he works with this little paramedic crew outside of Kiev and he does all this little area right here. Boom. All right. Hey, you, you, you help me distribute this stuff. And I know it's where it's going and I know it's going to be pretty effective and it's quick. I don't have to deal with this, all this insular bureaucracy BS of Hey, do you have this paperwork? Hey, who are you really helping? Can you prove that you're really helping? I'm like, hey man, I have been helping. If you need more proof than like the photos, the testaments, I have, we have written letters of thank you. If you need more than that, I don't know what to do. Like I can't, there's been other, other ones that are hoarding gear in warehouses. And if you don't have parliament letter and special, <laughs> special request form zero dash alpha <laughs> signed by three commanders what are you serious right now you have thousands of dollars of gear in a warehouse and, and there's a bunch of guys sitting in a trench and sweatpants and running shoes yeah they won't they won't oh, give out anything god the little ones are just pushing they'll receive something and they push it out immediately another one about a week ago a guy who was not a combat medic, but he's this crazy Canadian Swiss dude. He's <laughs> long story. He started with helping out a clinic. So he got spun up on trauma that way on treating people. Cool. Then he's a volunteer. He's, he was part of the army for like a year. And, um, but now he's helping with evacuations. And he got two cars donated. He's gotten diesel generators for like those little out. Uh, stabilization points, clinics, tons of medical gear. And uh, I've received medication from just random people. Hey, here's some TXA, here's some antibiotics, here's some pain meds, here's uh, some bandages, here's some tourniquets. And I know he, crazy dude, just drives under mortifier to get these people out. <laughs> I'm like, hey, I'm going to give all this stuff to him because right now I'm not there, so he'll take it out. For example, his car got blown up and I think he already pulled enough funds to buy a new one. Why? Because he's a small guy and small, he's not even an organization. It's just him and his like assistant. They're very open about it. It's like, hey, this is how the money I receive and this is how I'm spending it. Some of it is, yes, it's my food. And then the rest, he clearly dictates how it is. Whereas the 50 cent upcharge at CVS for the Red Cross, I don't know how that's being spent mm -hmm. in Ukraine drastic difference much more direct impact supporting this small dude small ngo small group of people versus the big ngo that i don't know how that money is being spent like if i say i'm an american i want to give a bunch of money to an ngo how do i know which small ngo 
is going to be useful and which one's going to hoard stuff in a warehouse or take pictures of themselves in Lviv? To this day, I still don't know how to properly answer that. The easy answer is, hey, donate it to Dark Horse. But <laughs> no, but seriously, though, there are a few you just have to like get spun up on the NGOs that are doing work. And Instagram has been the best bet currently to see who's actually being impactful. There's several NGOs that are in Ukraine and we kind of like post each other. It's like a group of 10 and it's constantly posting each other, the support ones. Then there's like the the foreign legion ones that, that tag each other that are doing like operations. And then there's the support, like we fall under the support, like we do training, we do logistics. Um, and then we just constantly support each other, tag each other. If you find one of those and you, you, you'll see the trends, it's like five to 10 of, 10 of us. And this one's training, this one's training, this one brings in gear, this one brings in MREs and you take a day and look up Ukrainian relief or like from ours, like Dark Horse benefits, uh, well, Dark Horse vets on Instagram. You see us and you'll see like us, how we post and tag each other. And then that's pretty much it. And you'll see all the work and follow and it's there. We constantly tag each other, support one of us. Okay. What would you say to the Americans or even Western Europeans who want to go there to Ukraine and volunteer? There are organizations that would receive volunteers. There are groups that, for example, I, I can think of one right off the bat. It's called Paracrew that take uh, volunteer paramedics and they go to places where there's no medical treatment, right? Because the city just got destroyed, leveled. So they'll bring like little clinics where there's like refugees coming in and out or there's the hospitals all got leveled. So they'll do like medical checks because people are still sick or they still need transport to another hospital in another city now. So it's a bunch of volunteer paramedics. Certain organizations will receive volunteers, but before you even spend the $5,000 that's going to take you to get on a, a flight, a train, a hotel, lodging, meals, to even start because it's about five days to get into the country, just because of, well, you're coming from the United States. If you're coming anywhere in Germany, it's going to be much quicker. But the multi-day trip to get in there and the price of it, much better spent pay for a bunch of tourniquets and IFACs for dudes and support an NGO that's already doing it. That's a much better way to spend your money and time or share them. Tell your buddies and friends, hey, like do a little fundraiser for them. That's better way. Again, reach out on Instagram to those NGOs and ask them, hey, can can I support you guys? Can I like, you know, do a, a fundraiser? Uh, can I do a day of sharing and posting about you guys, a post on Instagram for you? That gets more traction for the people doing work in country already versus at the end of the day, you're just one person. We, we bring in teams, like all these groups have teams in country, which is ran by individual volunteers. Yes. But like I said, it more impactful is if you support them from afar. How many IFACs or tourniquets do you think you could buy with $5,000? The amount that they'd spend on flights and lodging and all that? I'd say about 60. 60. Depends on the cost. Uh, probably more. I'd say if, if you buy eh, if you buy on a wholesale price, probably a little bit more. Picture like that. For, for the amount it takes one person to get into, the, into Ukraine and start doing something, you could outfit 
probably more over 60 people with something that would save lives. And an IFAC is not just, I mean, it's your individual aid kit, right? Uh, field aid kit. But from there, you can probably treat a couple people, right? You'll have one tourniquet, yeah, but I might bandage somebody else. So it's not just, hey, I'm, I'm providing uh, what I said originally, all these Western volunteers and doing the reward tourism. It's like, guys, the amount of money, hundreds, probably thousands, that you guys came into this country to help, you could have easily just pulled a bunch of money and given it to a few individuals that were doing much more impactful stuff. All right. Well, uh, that's all the questions I have. Is there anything you want to close out with? Spread the word for us, please. <laughs> it, it's funny because Dark Horse never did this expeditionary service project. We did the Operation Shut Eye, which was delivering mattresses to soft units in conjunction with Ashley. It was uh, Tempur-Pedic mattresses. And then the, the SAFA program of veteran transition, you know, it's kind of like a shark tank, quasi shark tank, right? And then this is the first time it's like an international aid for Dark Horse. So it's for Dark Horse to be so small to now doing this international thing. It's been difficult and a learning lesson to adapt. So frankly, it's spreading the word. And it's been helping a lot because we've been getting linked up with different companies and NGOs, and now we're learning how to do stuff internationally. So spreading the word has grown our network and it's been one of the biggest things that has helped us. We'll, uh, we'll try to help you with that. Thanks, Dan. Awesome. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please leave us a review and share it with somebody that you think would appreciate it. You can learn more about Dark Horse and make a donation to help bring them much-needed medical equipment and training to Ukrainians by going to darkhorsebenefits.com or follow their Instagram account, darkhorsevets. Please go to buildingtheelite.com where you can learn more about training for special operations, download a sample chapter of our book, access free selection training guides, and use our assessment profile tool in order to see how your physiological profile compares to what's needed to succeed in special operations selection.